Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Carolina Weather Group. This is the Wednesday, December the 7th edition. Uh, we're welcoming our guest, Dr. Marshall Shepard. Happy to have Marshall with us. This makes our third year in a row that uh, Dr. Shepard has been able to join us. So uh, we look forward to our yearly visits with, uh, with Marshall, and I look forward to uh, discussing our topic tonight about flooding and uh, just how we can better communicate that, as well as uh, talking about some of the uh, previous weather events, which have included a lot of flooding throughout the uh, throughout the southeast. So uh, before we do that, let's uh, take care of a few housekeeping rules. This is a live broadcast, so if you have any questions or any uh, comments as we go through the show tonight, uh, feel free to tweet them to us or uh, use our Facebook page, and we'll make sure to uh, get those uh, to Marshall or to our panel as well. And if you're listening on the uh, podcast, uh, We'll have uh, Dr. Shepard uh, share his social media accounts uh, at the end of the show, and that way you can direct any questions to him um, if you're listening on the podcast forum. So I think all of those shows are up to date. Uh, I know James has been busy, but he's given me the thumbs up, so it looks like they're good. Uh, make sure you check out our website. too. We have a, a few new blogs up there as well. So uh, happy to have Marshall here. It's been a kind of an active week uh, with um, some rainfall in the area, and I want to also to Ricky here in just a little bit let him talk about uh, how much rain not maybe necessarily he's got there in the Tri-Cities but just to the south of him in Knoxville I, I've seen some of those totals uh, over the past couple of weeks and it's crazy to see how much rain they've got uh, over this uh, short amount of time but to kind of recap I know James you were out of town but we were talking a little bit earlier this week about the tornado that uh, went through uh, the southwest part of Charlotte uh, maybe kind of give us a recap of what uh, the National Weather Service found out there and then tell us what's been going on in Charlotte since then. Uh, absolutely. Good to be back with you guys. And that's right. I was actually out of town when that tornado happened, but I was frantically calling my wife because, and I'm going to try to bring up the radar scope here while I'm talking about it. That was well within my comfort, my margin of error when I was looking at this on, uh, I was actually looking at it on the terminal radar out of Charlotte because it was just a few miles from where we live. And given the radar situation in Charlotte, I wasn't exactly sure where that guy was and where he was going, but we did uh, have a confirmed later by the National Weather Service a tornado. Guys, correct me if I'm wrong, it was an EF-1. Is that right? Yeah, I'm getting some shaking of heads. It was an EF-1, and I do remember just at that moment where I was calling my wife to make sure that she was aware of it. It was crossing near the interchange of 45 and 77 in South Charlotte, where it brought down some power lines and also knocked over a tractor trailer. Uh, later came into the storm report. So uh, I did manage to get a hold of my wife uh, just as the weather radio was starting to scream in the background. So I think I got a hold of her just as, as she described it, all the lights and sirens were going off here in the apartment. So uh, good to know we had a little bit duplication of uh, message. Good to be back on with you tonight. Good to be uh, talking with uh, Dr. Shepard, who just before the show started, we were recounting, I was in his 2009 intro to weather and climate class. And I was telling him, and he seemed to recall as well, that uh, I always remember that in his class, in his lecture hall full of kids, he made a point of getting to know my name and came on my uh, student radio show. And we talked about something that at this point, neither one of us can actually remember. But I do remember that at the end of the show, I had to hang up on him because there was no way for me to take the call off air and thus thank him for coming on without first hanging up on him and then having to call him back. And I'm laughing because I feel like I'm going to have to do the same thing tonight. At about 8.30, I'm going to quietly slip out. Uh, so I feel like I'm hanging up on him again. So I'll say right now, thank you for coming on, and I'm sorry I keep hanging up on you. No, no problem. <laughs> no problem at all. I can't give you a grade, so I won't hold it against you. <laughs> okay, that's good this time. Uh, well, James, we're happy to have you back, and I'm going to toss it to Ricky next. But, Ricky, interesting thing about the tornado that hit in Charlotte, uh, you and I were talking about this last week. The last tornado that hit Charlotte back in 2014 was 2014. within – 
a half a mile to a quarter of a mile where this tornado came through last week. Yeah, it was, uh, yeah, it was uh, I want to say it was early, it was early 2014 or so, Scotty. Or so, Scotty. Uh, I think so, maybe think more. So, maybe April, more April, 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 April. April. Yeah, it, yeah it, was it, was, it was that time frame. They're like the same area. Yeah, the same area. Almost hit some almost of these, some of these buildings. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, we talked about uh, more multiple, multiple, multiple times in a row. Times in a row. Was, um, was one one Microsoft, Microsoft building in Charlotte. Yeah, Charlotte from, from tornadoes. Yeah, and, yeah. and, let's, and let's go to let's go uh, talking about weather. If you guys had, if you guys had East Tennessee, and there was a lot of wildfires in the area. Tell us about how that's progressing and how much rain you guys have seen over there. All right, I think we're getting a little bit of feedback too. Marshall's mic. Is that right? That's a little bit. There we go. There we go. Still a little bit. Still a little bit. All right. Yeah, but the talking about Knoxville, they picked up almost five inches of rain so far in the month of December, which is. Remarkable considering, Remarkable for considering for times previous to that, they only had a couple inches. In the month of October, I think we only picked up 0.18 inches of rain. And then uh, November actually picked up 5.78, 2.59 so far in December. So almost what, six, we'll round up. Seven, eight, almost nine inches of rain so far in just November and December. And that was late November, early December when most of the rain fell. So helpful for some of the fires down there, but most of that rainfall, unfortunately, Kind of went west of the Gatlinburg Pigeon Forge area to where it really didn't uh, include them too much. The helped for sure, without a doubt, uh, but it wasn't a, a nice soaking rain as we would have wished would move right over there. It kind of socked itself in with Knoxville instead. So, hey, tell Foster we said hello. He's right behind you. Tell for oh, say he's uh, finding, not coming to the finding his. Uh, he, he's got this thing. He doesn't know what he wants to sit on. He's got a doggy bed, but I also have a blanket I just threw in here in the room, and he sometimes likes that. <laughs> Um, uh, sometimes he'll sleep on the floor of my bathroom. So if a tornado ever comes by, he's already in the safest place. So I don't have to worry about him. He's good to go. Well, Shay, you, uh, I'll toss it to you next. You mentioned that, uh, you guys are bracing for some cold weather down there in the uh, low country of South Carolina. Yeah, it looks like it's going to make it down here. We're looking at high temperatures Friday and Saturday and only in the mid forties. So we're going to see some of the coolest temperatures since February here in Charleston, uh, come this weekend. Then we'll warm up again to more mild climate like we've had the last few days, and then we'll get maybe another cold shot late next week. We're looking at uh, probably not as severe uh, cold weather blast from Canada, but uh, either way, it does warrant watching for sure as we start to slide into the winter months. Um, we did get some rain, some much needed rain here in the southeast. We got almost four inches over the last 48 hours. Uh, we, break, we did break a record. Let me take a quick peek at National Weather Service Charleston, 2.8, 2.18 inches of rain yesterday, which broke the record of 1.86 in 1972. So a much needed uh, record breaking rain for a day uh, as we, I think we're pretty much gonna graduate from the D zero drought uh, severity index. Uh, as far as the rain goes, uh, we're looking to hopefully when the new drop monitor comes out, I believe it'd be out tomorrow or early Friday morning, uh, we'll get a better idea of what the drought's looking like. But hopefully a lot of this rain that's come down has been helping in that area. Um, other than that, yeah, just pretty much the tug and pull of the sea surface temperatures and the land warming each day uh, with sea surface temps about 61.3 degrees here in Charleston, about 61 further south around Savannah. So we're, we're cooling down. Waters are slowly cooling down. They're probably going to go ahead and drop into the mid to upper 50s as of this weekend, and then things will, uh, 
And that always has an effect on any thunderstorms that approach our area because we get a southerly wind ahead of them and you get stabilization of the air and then you don't end up having the thunderstorms that are forecasted. Uh, so it's always a, a good nugget to throw out there. Hey, these may not happen. It may just fizzle out to a light rain by the time it gets here. Uh, but uh, yep, that's pretty much it for the for the Charleston, for the South Carolina coastal area. Back to you, Scotty. Yes, Jay, interesting you um, mentioned that. The, uh, when we look at the drought monitor tomorrow to see how much uh, progress we've made here in the southeast, um, especially uh, in the parts of Tennessee and Georgia and upstate South Carolina. All right, I'm going to toss it to probably the most stressed man on the panel, Mr. Kitt, who is uh, embracing uh, almost final weeks, right, Kitt? Yes, and to quote uh, Fraser Crane, um, one of my favorite TV shows, not since Quasimodo roamed the streets of medieval Paris have so many people uttered the phrase, that poor man. <laughs> it's been pretty stressful the past couple of weeks, uh, running down towards exams. Um, couple of things, a little risky, but I've got it covered. Um, studying my butt off uh, this week, this weekend, into next week for the finals. Uh, specifically statistics, that one's been kicking my tail this semester. But other than that, when I was walking home last night, just in weather news, um, I, it was, I think it was 39 degree dew point and 40 degrees uh, temperature. And it was just so humid that just my breath on my phone was starting to condense on the screen. Um, looked at the weather station up on top of McHenry and it said it was 91% humidity. So it, it was cold but muggy, um, which is a rare occurrence here. Um, other than that, I am looking forward to the cold. Uh, it's always the best time of the year for me. Um, I just enjoy the cold. So hopefully uh, we can get into the swing of things here pretty soon. Yeah, it's, it's going to get chilly. Uh, we're looking at maybe not getting out of uh, the 30s for parts of western North Carolina. And as you were talking, uh, very foggy conditions over the area this uh, morning for uh, western North Carolina. Uh, in fact, we had some freezing fog issues here in the foothills. So uh, tis the yeah, season. A, tis the season. There was that. a dense fog advisory out this morning, I think. Yeah, yeah, it, it was pretty big out there. So uh, without further ado, let's give it uh, to uh, Dr. Marshall Shepard. Uh, I'll let Ricky do the interview, but Marshall, we were talking earlier about the uh, tornado in Charlotte. Uh, you guys had uh, some severe weather as well last week. Maybe kind of recap with that, because if I'm not mistaken, I've seen a, a radar image from Grant Gilmore, and he actually traced uh, the tornado that happened in Charlotte actually originated where that, that storm originated in the Atlanta metro area and carried up through the upstate. So how, uh, about the tornado down there in Atlanta and uh, kind of introduce yourself to everybody. Okay, let me make sure I'm off mute. Can you hear me? All yeah. right, so yeah, that was a pretty interesting little event for us. Uh, we actually, I think I even tweeted students in our building and um, they're in the geology geography building that were evacuating down to the shelters. Uh, it was really one of the really interesting things about that particular storm. Yeah, you know, we had tornadic activity in Atlanta Metro proper. Um, I think there was some damage in a reported tornado near Six Flags over Georgia. If any of your viewers or listeners know where the amusement park Six Flags is, it's just west of it, downtown Atlanta. Um, we were impacted by uh, a cell that had some rotation as it was moving just to our west and north of the Athens area, but just a little bit of Clark County, which is where the University of Georgia is, actually was in the 
uh, warning polygon, if you will. And so all of the sirens went off, went off at the University of Georgia. And so we took immediate action at the university. Interestingly enough, like any good meteorologist, I'm looking at radar scope and uh, clearly seeing that that storm was not going to impact the university campus at all. And so it really is, uh, brings up a, a, an entire sort of discussion about the communication challenge, some of the procedures of whether uh, our our siren and warning systems are activated if only a sliver of the county is in the warning uh, um, polygon, even if the, there's no chance that that particular storm is going to impact the university at all. So I'm, I'm pretty sure this is a discussion we'll be having at the University of Georgia. And that may have been the system that moved into your part of the upstate area if you're, you're talking about, I'm not exactly sure. Um, but let me just kind of step back. Yeah, I'm, I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard. Uh, from the University of Georgia. You've heard me mention that a few times. I'm director of the Atmospheric Sciences Program at the University of Georgia, uh, which is probably the home of the country's newest atmospheric sciences major program. So I definitely wanted to use this opportunity to you know, get that information out there for some of your high school listeners or folks that are interested in studying meteorology, weather, climate. Uh, we've had a 31-hour certificate program at the University of Georgia for about 20 years. Um, so it's, you, people have left our program, basically have a major. Now we can officially call it that. So, But our program meets AMS and federal standards. So anybody that leaves our program uh, can take the AMS, get the CBM, and all those kind of things that you must have in a program. So uh, we're not some fly-by-night program. We're, we're a legit program that has some really solid graduates out there. Uh, I also host a little show on the Weather Channel. You may have heard of it called Weather Geeks. Uh, hopefully you'll tune, in, tune, in, tune into that every Sunday at noon. And uh, occasionally I'll write some stuff for Forbes, whatever's on my mind. And if you're out there right now, make sure you're following me on Twitter at Dr. Shepard 2013. Uh, those of you, I think all the Carolina Weather Group knows that I keep it interesting on there. I've got a few things to say every now and then. Thanks. That, that, that's, that's a perfect that, introduction. Of, perfect uh, introduction of, uh, I, I want to circle back. I, I want to circle back about the tornado at tornado because I'm interested. I'm interested from a, from a meteorologist, from a meteorologist there, campus. Campus. What was the what student's was reaction, the student's and then what was your perception when the warning was going on? Yeah. Well, I you know I saw that we definitely had the chance for something. I was actually in the um, NWS chat uh, sitting there in my office, so I was kind of following all the discussions, I had my radar up. So I, I, I saw what was about to happen if they were about the issue of warning. So I, I was kind of, I knew that was coming. When the siren started going off, I mean, I, I could, I stepped out into the hallway as students are filing out of the classrooms. We have a shelter in our, our basement. And you know, the interesting thing is I kept hearing many of the students say, oh, is this a drill or is this some kind? And I was like, no, this is a real thing. Even though, you know, I, I didn't want to kind of convey that you know, really there was no danger of that storm hitting the campus. Um, I wanted to kind of be a good citizen and kind of follow the protocols. But, you know, in retrospect or in hindsight, I, I, you know, I, I am teaching a class this semester at the University of Georgia on weather, climate, risk, and communication. And we've been, it's a graduate class, we've been having the students look at literature. And one of the papers we just read was on the lack of understanding of the polygon by the general public and collegiate populations. Um, there's all kinds of misinterpretation we found when people, first of all, this is something that kind of bugs me. So let me just go off on a tangent here for a second and step up on my soapbox. Uh, 
So, you know, we all in the weather community, we put these polygons up and assume that like your aunt or my uncle understands those. And so the reality is a lot of people just see a shape. They don't really know why it's oriented the way it is. A lot of people think that they, you know, we, we did a, a test in our, in our, with this class where we sampled sororities at the university and fraternities. They don't know where the danger point is. They see the polygon and like, okay, where, where some people think it's just in the center that's the danger. So uh, I think as we think about some of these warnings, I, I mean, I, and it's hard for us to do, but we put ourselves as meteorologists, we look at that polygon on the map and it's just, we know exactly what we're seeing, but the majority of people, frankly, don't even know it's a polygon. And then secondly, um, they don't know what they're seeing, where the danger is, why it's oriented. Maybe it's, it, we know that it's oriented. One of my students even said, well, people understand the hurricane cone. Why don't we use a cone instead of a polygon even for the tornadoes? Well, that's fraught with its own challenges, we know. But I think this is something that we often kind of take for granted. And when people see those on their apps, they know what the heck they're looking at. And, and sometimes I don't think they do. I think Nate Johnson had a pretty Nate good one time, but uh, Chris Michael, but, uh, Chris Michael we can meteorologists like to bring up, he's like, you go out there, go out there, there the people in here. Yeah, that seems to be the case. And there's been some work to try and get those cone probability, all like tornado warnings. I understand, Greg, the facets program and all that stuff they're doing out in Oklahoma. What do you? What's your thoughts on that? And do you see it perhaps progressing us towards a more understanding of tornado warnings? Yeah, I think I, they do. I think the FACETS program is great. Uh, I think it's uh, going to be quite helpful. The forthcoming weather bill activity certainly is supporting social sciences. And that's that's the key. Look, we're pretty good with the modeling and technical side now, to be honest with you, but we still stink at sort of the communication aspects and what colors to use and getting this TV. I know, Ricky, you're in the TV industry, getting the TV stations to use the same colors or similar colors. And, uh, you know, we've got a lot of challenges with communication and as James Spann uh, and even the National Weather Service in Birmingham tweeted or wrote about a couple of weeks ago, heck, you still have people calling in saying they don't know where they are on the map. So um, there are all of these sort of challenges that we take for granted as you just talked about, but I think facets will help. Um, for your viewers and listeners, there's something called the Hazard Simplification Project National Weather Service is uh, currently undertaking. They've got some surveys floating around out there that uh, to gather feedback from the public on, because I don't know if you guys have ever looked at this. If you don't, do yourself a favor, if you just want some amusement, go and look at a chart of all of the various watches, warning, and advisories for all of the different hazards in the weather service. It looks like the periodic table of elements. I mean, it is just, I mean, I, seriously, when I showed that to my class, some of them weren't familiar with just how many, I know we're gonna talk about floods later, just how many flood warnings there are. I mean, there's small stream flood or flash flood. Or, I mean, and so when you get a big event like South Carolina in 15 or Baton Rouge this year, people are like, oh, yeah, we get flood warnings all the time. And then they tune out. So this simplification effort and possibly even the re complete removal of the term advisory, and I think it could go, I think is a step forward because we just have so, many, so much terminology out there that we as a community take for granted that people get confused by. I mean, I mean, keep in mind, I mean, I, I like to use the, the mall test. Keep in mind if you're walking through the mall and you walk up to some random person in the mall and ask them about a polygon or ask them what a straw, small stream advisor or whatever they call it is, they're not gonna know. And so keep that filter. I always try to keep that filter in my head when I'm thinking about these things. 
Uh, I think a perfect think example, a perfect even example earlier, earlier as a broadcaster and someone who dials in weather every single day, the weather service in Morristown issued an evacuation imminent alert. I had never even knew that product existed from the weather service, but hey, they issued one uh, when the Gatlinburg fires went along. So I think... Uh, Let me just say something about the fires and now I'll get your guys' opinions on this because I wrote something in Forbes about the Gatlinburg fires and the meteorology involved in that. Um, do you guys feel we have enough adequate warning for sort of hazard-based warning for that type of event? Because someone I know that lived in that area said that, you know, that was a rapidly evolving situation. And, you know, if there's a tornado approaching that region, there was a flash flood, there'd been a flash flood warning. But, you know, that type of event was rapidly evolving and people perhaps aren't as familiar with that type of an event. So even if something is issued, I mean, is our warning and our app-based system adequate to warn people of something like that particular event? I, I mean, it's something I've been re really thinking about re really uh, recently, and not only the fire itself, but also the smoke hazard related to it. It was causing some significant problems there and here. So oh, that's absolutely right. So that's yeah, absolutely right. Yeah. Uh, I had several people. Uh, they mentioned on, like through the social media that they never even knew about the fire until maybe I mentioned it, or they read they read about it on Facebook. They had no idea what was going on. Yeah, the national no news networks were not, they weren't putting it out there. I think I saw a small snippet on CNN, flipped over to Fox. They were still, everybody was doing political stuff. There was nothing about what was going on in Gatlinburg for, I mean, an hour or two hours. Then there was a small mention and then they went right back to their, so I don't think that the national news is really giving it the higher priority of coverage. So if and you thought, great, great internet delay, right? So I was just going to add like, Myself and the other folks on the panel, I know we all consume a lot of weather. I found myself in a very interesting position the last few weeks traveling for business. I wasn't consuming weather and news in the same volume I normally consume it. And maybe I was consuming it more along the same scope as the average viewer, average member of the public might. And I will say I was in the same situation. I didn't know about that fire as a possible threat or even the fact that it was happening until hours into the evacuation, which for me as a news junkie was was frightening. Now, mind you, I was in upstate New York. So maybe if I was local, it would have been a different matter. But I will say that did slip by me. And as a news junkie, that troubled me that I didn't know that was coming or possible. So a few thoughts from me on this as someone who's a little closer to everything. Um, Let's go back and kind of talk about the getting the information. So first off, people have to get the information. There was a massive breakdown in how people got the information with this event because, and I talked to some folks at the weather service who sent out these alerts. The weather service, from my understanding, is not able to trigger WEA alerts on cell phones because it is not a weather-related product. The WEA alert has to come from the local emergency management. So envision someone sitting at a vacation cabin in, in Gatlinburg what are you probably doing? Likely not watching the television, likely not having the radio on. You know, so your only method of notification is probably your cell phone if it goes off or someone knocking on your door telling you to get out. And to go to kind of James's point, we had a pretty similar situation here. We did a man on the street news story where we walked down State Street and asked people, hey, did you hear about the Orlando shootings at the nightclubs? One out of 10 people knew about it. And I had the exact same event happen to me. My girlfriend was up here one weekend. We were watching a movie. And the, uh, what was it, the Paris bombings happened. Um, I think it was one or two weeks ago, a couple months ago, uh, early 2016. I had no idea what was going on. And I wouldn't have known until I got on social media. So I can 100% understand how people wouldn't be up to date. The problem is, you know, how do we 
reach those people. And it's the same type of concept that applies to weather. You know, if you're sitting at your vacation cabin with TV off, radio off and everything, and sirens not in the area, how are you going to be notified of something uh, if it's not via WEA alerts or some other means? Or just, it also goes back to, and this is kind of a different story, also accepting the risk where you live. The whole thing of accepting risk if you live on the coast of hurricanes, accepting risk if you live near a river of flooding. If you live near a volcano, there's a decent chance it may explode one day. And if you live near a forest, there's a decent shot it's going to light on fire one day. And I don't think people in this day and age kind of understand and also grasp or even want to uh, recognize that it can happen to them. And that's a whole different story that kind of goes back to social science, in my opinion. Yeah, that I've written about that as well. The whole concept of optimism bias, um, the, the notion that people actually sort of have this very high expectation at times of low probability events like winning the lottery, but then they have a very loose perspective on something that's more likely to happen, like their house burning down or their house flooding, so they won't buy insurance. So there's this sort of mismatch between um, optimism bias and social scientists and psychologists have studied that and it's a very real thing. Um, yeah, I, I think that, you know, one of the things I would advocate, you know, because I agree with you on that, Ricky, about the sort of cell phone based messaging, but for, I, I think we have to get people in certain places to kind of behave the way our schools or our universities do. So in large resorts or in large hotels or large, I think there needs to be some sort of point of emergency management point of contact that is constantly monitoring so that they can then notify in those regions. That still doesn't certainly help the sort of public that's just in their own personal or private homes, but you're right. And if I'm in a vacation spot in the mountains, I mean, I'm, I may or may not be thinking about watching the weather or watching TV, but I, there needs to be some mechanism in those facilities to, you know, in the same way that a university or an elementary school is monitoring a rapidly evolving situation so that they can dis disseminate that information. But yeah, I, th I think this fire, a uh, reason I brought it up is I, I think there are just a lot of things about that event that are not on our radar. And, and yeah, it's a low probability event, but I think it's one that can be used to educate on not just what you were saying, but I think a lot of people don't realize uh, how um, import how rapidly a fire can generate its own meteorology. Um, you, you had that sort of, you, you had that significant wind with the frontal passage of Fropob, but you also have these situations where you've got these thermals that are being developed by all this intense heating and these gusts that can actually amplify and move up or down the valleys and the ridges. And so these things can happen on scales that, you know, just are might be surprising to people too. So uh, I think it just opens up an avenue to think about these things, particularly perhaps in areas more like where you, your coverage area, Ricky and others, just start to have this dialogue. I, I mean, usually out of, out of tragedy come lessons that can benefit us going forward. So, I, I want to kind of piggyback on that for just a second, uh, Marshall. Uh, you were talking about that person of contact. Uh, I think the wildfires was a very unique event. Um, you know, it just perfect ingredients. Uh, but I can speak on the emergency management side, uh, doing some consultant work with some local EM departments here in the Western Carolinas. And uh, during uh, the summertime, there's a lot of, uh, up here in the mountains, a lot of campgrounds and stuff like that. Uh, and we worry about not only just thunderstorms setting on the mountains, creating a lot of rain, but also tropical systems, stuff like that. So anytime that we see that, uh, we're always in communicate communicating with the EMs. And then when, when the big weather, if, let's say a, a tropical system moves up through the area, uh, we are in the EM EOC center and we have designated people who 
are on the phone with the local campground officials every 30 minutes, 45 minutes, giving them constant updates, uh, reading them the stream gauges upstream of, hey, look, you know, the river's starting to rise a little bit. You know, you just be on guard right now. And then we have these thresholds. And once we see the river rise six, seven feet, then we're alerting the, the campground officials, hey, right now you need to start preparing. You, we're not evacuating yet, but have the preparation. And then, um, as I think we lost Marshall, uh, but I'll, I'll continue my thought. But then as we go into the flood stages, that's when we initiate uh, those evacuations and tell those officials, uh, you know, once we get to that point, we tell officials, hey, you know, we've reached that critical area now. So let's go ahead and start moving the folks outside of the campground because in the next hour or two, we could start to see some flooding in the area. So uh, I think you're exactly right with your point on having that person of contact. And I, I love my part of that job being the consultant is saying, hey, you know, this is the heavy rain that we're seeing in the next two or three hours. We're probably going to see the streams and the creeks and the rivers rise another foot, two foot, whatever the case may be. And that way they can go ahead and, and be proactive about that and go ahead and, and start evacuating uh, the lowest land, uh, lowest line areas of any campgrounds and stuff like that. James, I think you had a point you want to bring in. I did. I have a question on the social science conversation we were having, and then we can use this to transition into flooding if you want, because I know it, it. my question is going to apply to flooding, tornadoes, fires, or, or all scopes of, of kind of weather emergencies, Dr. Shepard. And knowing what we know about what the public understands and knowing what we know about what we need to convey, do we need them to come to us or do we need to go to them or do we need to meet the public in the middle when it comes to conveying this emergency weather information? Uh, very good question. I think it needs to be a little bit of both as usual, but I, I think it needs to be a bit more from the sort of organic ground up. I, I think a lot of the mistakes that we've made as an enterprise is that we kind of sort of develop what we think works and then say, hey, here it is. And then we haven't gotten any information. I, I call it the, pull, the push model versus the pull model. So, so I think we need a little of the push and pull. But I, I think, I think they, the, the enterprise, the weather service, private entities, I think that message has been heard loud and clearly. So that's why with the Hazard Simplification Act, or Act, but uh, project, you're seeing focus groups uh, being held. I know some broadcasters, for example, went out to Norman over the last year or so uh, to participate in focus groups. There are surveys that are being sent out. Um, but, I, you know, to transition to the flooding a little bit, because, you know, just like we talked about that people didn't really know about these fires, if you go back to the floods of um, Baton Rouge earlier this year, uh, there, there in Louisiana, I mean, we saw that event coming. We knew, was, but people even knew that there were warnings and people knew that things were going on. But, you know, if you listen to some of the people, we talked about this on Weather Geeks. People were like, yeah, you know, I knew there was going to be some bad flooding, but we've had floods before. I mean, and I think it's because there are so many sort of messaging sort of act, um, opportunities around flooding that you become desensitized to it. I think, I think we overhype tornadoes and hurricanes. I mean, I, I, I will say that, but the, one of the really interesting things about tornadoes and hurricanes is they are still rare. In other words, even though we follow weather quite a bit, a Cat 4 or Cat 3 hurricane or an even an EF5 tornado event is still a relatively rare thing. Um, almost any day of the week, if it's raining somewhere, you can probably find, find a flood warning or a watch or an advisory somewhere. So they're, they're so common that I think people sort of lump them all in one category when in fact, this, even let's go to Carolina, this Carolina weather group, the, the South Carolina 
look at that event. Um, another sort of challenge we have, we knew that was going to be a big flood event for South Carolina, but everybody was talking about the hurricane that we knew out there in the, that we knew wasn't going to really be a factor. So we have this challenge of people being desensitized to the multiple flood warnings that are out there. We have this challenge of people not really appreciating the threat of a flood in the same way. I think people can sort of visualize the, the hazard of an EF5 tornado or Cat5 hurricane. I don't think they can visualize the full scope and threat of a what I call a creeping event as opposed to a sudden shock event. Floods tend to be in some cases, unless they're flash floods, a creeping event over hours to days in some cases. And in some cases of flooding, as you saw in North Carolina after uh, Hurricane Matthew this year, the most significant flooding was happening day a day or two or three after the event because with riverine flooding you get that lag response in the flooding and i just it's a concept that it's just hard to warn and get people's attention on do you I hit the nail on the head go ahead, go ahead Ricky. Um, i was just going to say uh, being here in charleston for the, the october event last year uh, very very significant i don't think people really grasp ricky and i were talking about that earlier and i'm going to steal his line just like you said, uh, how, do, how do people visualize 20 inches of rain when you see the, the atmospheric river forecast going from the, the mid-Atlantic and drifting down and all of a sudden the, the target zero is right here in Charleston, right across the middle of South Carolina and up into Columbia, especially the folks in the Midlands in Columbia had no idea what 16 inches of rain would do in that area, what, it, what the dams would, would undergo, um, what the river systems would do. So, you know, it's, it's really hard. To, to over forecast for something that may not hit 16 inches at that point you decide okay what do you really want to convey I mean if you if you go out saying okay we're gonna get 20 inches of rain and you end up 10 inches short that's gonna be a real problem um, you know because a lot of events get canceled all kinds of things uh, there's a lot of money at stake there so where <laughs> at what point when you have these large rain events do you go ahead and call for the highest probability and have people prepare for it yeah, can I, I want to jump on that because one of the things that drove me bananas about that South Carolina event in, in 2015, just follow me guys and ladies and whoever else is listening, cats and dogs, follow me on this for a second. Imagine if that 2015 event was Hurricane Matthew Cat 4, Cat 5 barreling into South Carolina. Do you think the Notre Dame Clemson game would have been played? If that was a Cat 5 name storm approaching? Nope. What my point is, it was played because it didn't have, I'm not, I, by the way, I'm not advocating for naming floods, by the way, but my point is that was a significant event. We knew it was going to be a significant event, but I think the people also take their cues from public officials. That game went on as if it were not going to be a hazard because I know it was a big deal event. Uh, however, had that same event, take the same, circumstances that or impacts and put it with a hurricane there would i believe i believe would have been a completely different response prior to what was happening and so it just goes back to the whole perspective or perception of flooding and i think we were talking before we came on about you know rush schumacher's group the spread group and they're they've developed this flood severity index if you want to read about it google uh, flood severity index is in the, somewhere in the Journal of Hydrology earlier this year, if you can get to the peer-reviewed literature. And, you know, I think it has its challenges that what they've done, but this was a, a, an index that was developed in part 
it originated from discussions I had with one of my former PhD students at University of Georgia, Dr. Amanda Schroeder, who's now a hydrologist at the Don Weather Service in Fort Worth. She had this idea, and then she got in this Russ's spread group, and they went off and did this. Uh, okay, looks like we've got some things up there. Like This is that from my Forbes article. Uh, and I'm talking a little bit about some of the challenges of conveying um, the flood message, messaging. And in this article that has just been placed on the screen, I, I, I provoke a little bit, and sometimes I do that. Those of you that know me, follow me on social media. Sometimes I write, I say things, post things, or write things just to provoke discussion. I may not even necessarily believe it myself, but one of the things I say in this article is, do we need a flood index? Um, do we, because I think people know what a cat, five hurricane will do. I think people know what an EF4 tornado will do, but I don't think people know what a really, really, really bad flood will do because there's no scale to give them perspective. So that was kind of what I was saying, and do we need a scale to at least give people perspective? It might actually end up and likely would be a, a post-event scale in the same way the EF scale is, but at least it starts to develop a psyche, a perspective or context in people's mind if it's a cat I don't even know what you call it, a, a cat four flood. People have in their mind, oh, this is a potential for a cat four flood. And then they have a set of actions or responses in their own head. So, you know, I don't, like I said, we're a long way from that. I'm not even, I'm not even saying right now I'm, I would advocate we need that, but it's something I think we need to think about. I think a, a potential problem here too is the media perception of floods versus tornadoes. I mean, when you get a hurricane moving up the coast, you get days and days of media perception. And in the aftermath, you get days and days of media perception. Tornadoes, for lack of a better word, are sexy to the national media. They cause death, destruction, and great visuals. Floods, yeah, it's kind of cool, but everything's covered in mud and it's wet. So, yeah, not that big of a deal. And uh, another story comes along the next day. So, I feel like people perhaps don't have this image. You know, we had Katrina. I think Katrina was almost a turning point for hurricanes and people being able to see what hurricanes could do. Of course, you know, probably not 100% the impacts related to the hurricane, but still, from a visual standpoint, it was helpful. Um, the other point that you bring up is, is the media even doing enough? I mean, is that a thing that we're doing is kind of, slacking off on this. I also want to make a point too, talking about the hurricane scales. What do you think about it being related almost to how we classify, not naming winter storms, but in the Northeast, they have the scale that kind of classifies winter storms after they happen. I forget the exact name of it. Maybe you have a, a remember it, but there's some scale out there. I think it was a Paul Koshin scale or something. Yeah, Cosin scale, yeah. Paul, Paul Cosin, who, yeah, if you don't know Paul Cosin, he and Louis Uccellini literally have written a book on winter storms. Uh, he used to be at uh, INSEP, and he was also the weather expert at the Weather Channel for a while. I think Paul's back with the Weather Service now, but I don't know exactly. But yeah, I remember the index you're talking about. Um, you know, you know, on your first point about uh, does the media, is it doing enough on floods? You know, I, I think it could do more. I think in some cases that comes down to some, in some cases, the news managers, the station managers, if we're talking about television media, because I, I, I know the pressures, you're, you're in the business. I'm, I don't, I don't do broadcasts. I do weather geeks, but I don't do a day-to-day -day, um, weather presentation. But frankly, sometimes these decisions made about how to cover a weather event are not just being made by the meteorologists at the station. Let's just kind of put that out there for your viewers and listeners right now. Uh, there's a whole strategy and, 
television market rationale sometimes of what gets covered, how co how it gets covered, and how frequently it gets covered. And let's face it, TV stations don't send reporters uh, to the field, frankly, to cover floods. They, they'll send them to the beach to cover a landfalling hurricane. Um, and so, again, as I said earlier, people take their cues from things like that. The other point I would make, though, is I think as much as, you know, many of us or several of us in this are involved in somehow with the media, I think we know and talked ourselves into the fact that a lot of people are not consuming television for media anyway or the traditional media in the same way that we probably grew up. So, um, you know, when information is being put out there and, you know, I have a big thing, you know, I always talk about social meteorologists and my new thing today uh, now is App, APP, atmospheric scientists. We got a lot of atmospheric scientists out there that look at their apps and look at their um, radar scopes and everything that we can all look at. And, you know, yeah, they can see the rain and they see where it's raining, but are there ways in these formats that people are increasingly consuming that conveys the threat and danger of a flood? I mean, yeah, you'll see a little green polygon, but like I said earlier in my little mini rant, I'm not sure people even understand or appreciate what polygons are, or what they mean. So yeah, I see a little green painted out thing on the app, but you know, you and I, we're sort of weather attentive consumers, but does Polly down at the Walmart know what she's looking at when she's looking at that little green polygon there? Um, boy, that was, I, I didn't really mean to use that. Uh, Polly, we were back to back like that. That was kind of cool. But do you, do you think she realizes what she's looking at when you see sees this polygon and the threat of a flood, or is that conveying a flash flood, or urban flood, or a stream flood? So I I think we've got a ways to go on flood warning. I really do. I think there are multiple problems ranging from the lack of uh, a context for people on what a really bad flood is to the media's non-sexy perfect. Um, perception on floods because I, I think you're right Rick, they, they aren't sexy in the same way that a landfalling or not that any of these should be safe there they all kill people in fact if you look at the national weather service statistics over the past 30 years the top weather killer is heat and last year the top weather killer was flooding and over the course of that 30 years flooding comes in second not tornadoes not hurricanes not lightning strikes heat flood the boring things. Boring, yes, but the most deadly. And so that's why I keep hammering that message as much as I can to make people more aware of the threats that may not, you know, you know, I, I'll just share a, a simple story here. Um, you, know, I, you know, in the last couple of weeks, I had a little health scare because I went to the doctor for like bronchitis and they found my blood pressure was like through the roof. And so, you know, you know, we kind of gotten that taken care of, gotten it back down, all that type of thing. But high blood pressure is one of those boring, silent things that doesn't get your attention, like something that may grab you in a health in a situation more, but it is just as dangerous to our health. And that's, you know, heat and floods are the high blood pressure of weather. That's what I'll put it that way. Good point. Right. We had a, uh, a question come in and we'll circle to Kit and then Shay after here um, to, to get their points. But I had a question come in from a viewer asking, or really saying that during the Baton Rouge flooding, a lot of people that they surveyed afterwards said that they really didn't understand the severity of the flash flood warnings because they got so many during the summertime and they kind of thought it was going to be the same exact deal. How do we differentiate between those two? Yeah, yeah, I think that's really the million million dollar question. Um, you know, we from a scientific standpoint, 
we have gotten pretty good at knowing when we're going to get big floods. So, I mean, even if you look at some of my research that I've done over the years, if you go back and look at the paper I wrote in BAMS, the Bulletin of the AMS in 2011 on the Atlanta floods, or if you go and look at a recent paper of myself and Amanda Schroeder, Steve Nelson, and and others have published in Weather and Fork, uh, no, sorry, Journal of Applied Meteorology and Climatology, we publish work looking at sort of the threshold values for significant flooding related to precipitable water. And I think many of us, and you probably guys probably know this, there are very clear indicators when the precipitable water, for viewers um, you know, that need a reminder, precipitable water is just sort of the measurable amount of water that we can kind of, kind of get out of a column of the atmosphere that can then fall as water. When we see precipitable water values or PW values over a certain threshold in the top 95 percentile or higher, they almost invariably indicate that they're going to we're going to see a, a, me, a pretty major flood. We know that from a meteorological perspective, but there is no way. And you know what? I can convey the oh yeah, we're going to put out the ninety. We're at a ninety-seven percentile level on the precipitable water. That's not going to resonate. But we've got to figure out a way to take that science information and package that in such a way that we can distinguish it. Ricky, from those multiple minor flood events that probably aren't in those PD uh, uh, precipitable water value ranges that indicate the uh, uh, severe floods. So my point to kind of close that discussion is we have the science techniques and, and knowledge now to differentiate the big floods from the garden variety floods. Now we've got to find a way to make that knowledge actionable. It's the communication part. Kit, you had a, uh, a point you want to make? And we're not hearing any audio from Kit. Mike's not muted. It's just we're not getting any audio through you. Check your levels, buddy. No, nope, still nothing. While he's working on that, Dr. Shepard, I'm going to share this page, uh, this picture. Uh, we were at the uh, uh, IWT training for uh, GSP back in October. And uh, it's talking about, you're talking about understanding the watch and the warning. This was a, uh, this was a survey taken in Atlanta um, after the uh, snowpocalypse, <laughs> per se, uh, and, and they did a survey, and they said 74% of, of the people they surveyed understood what a warning was, but only 19% understood what a watch was, 32% of, of the people knew what an advisory was, and 55% of the people thought a watch actually was an advisory. So uh, maybe some talking points on, on, on this and, and maybe how people don't even perceive what a watch warning and advisory is. Oh, yeah, I, I live in the poster child's uh, area to answer that question, because if you go back to the snow apocalypse in Atlanta, uh, Dr. Laura Myers, who's a social scientist, did studies, you know, post analysis of what happened in that, how two inches of snow crippled one of the largest cities in the nation. But what we found in many of the, from many of the, the, her studies is that people actually thought, a, a, an advisory was a downgrade from a watch because we were in a winter storm watch. We went to a winter weather advisory, and a lot of the people interpreted that as, "Oh, it's getting better. It's not going to be as bad. We're good to go. Um, I don't need all this bread I just bought." Uh, but in reality, what we saw is that people didn't understand that that was actually kind of an uptick. So that's why I made the point earlier, and I talked to Eli Jacks from the National Weather Service about this when he was on Weather Geeks. You know. I think that the advisory term is one that they seriously need to look at. And from what I understand from talking with them, they are looking at it. Uh, it may go soon to alleviate this conversation. Um, I think I have argued this as well. I know a lot of my severe weather colleagues out in Oklahoma 
in various places disagree with me on this, but I still believe that uh, when we talk about watch and warning, particularly tornado watch and warning, there is a significant portion of the public that doesn't understand the difference. I think I, I have evidence, and it's not just anecdotal, that because we've done some studies in, in, at UGA, uh, that people, some uh, there is a significant, significant portion of people that think tornado watch is the worst of those two situations, not the warning. And because a lot of people think they're watching the tornado and they're being warned of the possibility of a tornado. So I think when you live in certain geographies that experience more severe weather, you probably don't, you might not be as likely to um, make that mistake. But I think in places like Georgia and North Carolina, ten, Eastern Tennessee, South Carolina, where we don't get as many tornadoes, I think there people can be susceptible, susceptible to confusion on that. And one of the things that, you know, I tell people the differences between watch and warning, or I tell them what percent chance of rain means, and they don't really know, but then they say, well, how are we supposed to know? Our, our meteorologist never says, conveys that information. So I think that's where to get at Jane, one of James's points earlier, I think it was, I think that's where we as weather stakeholders, you guys as the Carolina Weather Group, us as weather geeks, TV meteorologists, the weather, I think we have to on slow weather days, and this came up recently at the Atlanta IWT, on slow weather days, I, I think we've got to use slow weather days as an opportunity to push stuff out there to educate. So when we have nothing really going on, push out there. Hey, did you know what the difference is between a watch and a warning? Hey, did you know what 30% chance of rain was? So let's leverage and utilize slow weather days to educate. That's a great idea. All right, let's see if Kit, sounds like he still has no mic. Could be uh, technical. He's, he's the admin, IT admin tonight. So we're- um, the, the exams were so hard, they, they stole his voice. <laughs> That's all right. I had a point to make, though, um, while he's trying to still figure that out. He's, he's gotten on it before. He's, he's done it before. Uh, but, you know, you brought up a point earlier about folks, uh, you know, considering a flooding event kind of boring. And uh, the October flooding event and, and a few other various flooding events here in the Charleston area, uh, folks were literally going out and they were moving barriers out of roads so that they could go on around. So there's there's that whole issue of uh, individuals going out into the floods, they don't take it seriously. Uh, so therefore, if they hear of a watch or a warning, a flood, uh, flash flood warning, they're not going to take it that seriously. But I do think that social media has um, produced some really interesting videos. Uh, and, and some of those folks, uh, God forbid anyone drowned, but there were some interesting videos of folks that drove into the floods in Columbia and, and elsewhere. Uh, after knowing that there was a flood, they knowingly drove into it. And then their car, of course, floats away in a current it further shows that it's just not safe to do. So we have a lot more material now to sort of push out there to show people, hey, look, this is this is pretty serious stuff. Uh, you know, the, the term turn around, don't drown from the National Weather Service, that was a really catchy phrase, but I still don't think people are taking it that seriously. And it really takes hardcore videos like that of these folks actually going in and having to be rescued off the tops of their cars to get the point across further. Yeah, the turnaround don't drown. I mean, I think it's it's cute. Uh, I think it maybe does have some value. I think there need to be some efficacy studies to see exactly how um, uh, effective these types of slogans are. But I, yeah, I think I, you know, I think most Americans are from the show me state. You got to show them. You got to show them the impact of what just as little as six inches of rain on I a mean, flooded roadway can do uh, for uh, if they're in their cars because. Yeah, yeah, you know, I'm fairly prolific, so I've written about this in Forbes, and I, and I, I included a graphic 
showing the physics of how your car can float away from six inches of flooded roadway because there's a, you know, there, you know, go back to our physics classes, there are sort of interaction of the forces, there are contributions from the buoyancy of the tires or some things that make it more susceptible than you think. Even if you are driving a big expedition or a big Silverado or whatever you're driving, uh, the same physics are at play. And so I think when you show people, not just say, you know, you, you, I mean, you know, I have young kids, and I know, Shay, I know you have kids, and, and some of the, I don't know if the other guys do, but sometimes you tell your kids to do something, and they don't do it, and they, you know, it's like, stop standing on that chair, and they don't do it, and then they just keep standing on, they fall, and like hurt themselves, you know, uh, then they kind of learn, <laughs> you got to show them, and so uh, I think that's, you know, where we are with flooding and driving through flooded roads. Now, one of the big challenges is people and this is, gets back to the social sciences a little bit with flooding and why people might consider driving through a flooded roadway. People have trouble evaluating risk. There are psychological studies on gambling and betting that have shown, one of the, my colleagues at the University of Georgia in psychology looks at this, has shown that people have a very difficult time assessing risk. And so people develop their own risk assessment in real time. So they saw the car and the two cars in front of them make it across that road. So they feel that they will, or they really have to get the daycare and get their son because they got to get get them home and get their other daughter, pick them up from volleyball practice. So they make these risk assessments in real time based on real life decisions, and those really may outweigh what maybe the perceived lower risk that their car might get swept away and they may die. And so I think that the more we can kind of convey and show those hazards, maybe that risk of getting into that dry flooded road would rise to the level in their risk model that they're using in their head. These are in the social sciences community, they call these mental models. So people have these mental models of what they consider risk in different situations. So uh, you, I bet you this in a tornado warning, uh, if there's a tornado warning and there's a tornado shown to be within five miles of their house, most people aren't leaving the house. But that same kind of mental model response for a flood warning doesn't happen. They still may go out and run to the store, or go keep, pick their kid up. Right, or get a selfie with the tornado in the background. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to speak for Kit here since his mic is out. He's got uh, questions for you. Let's see. While the South Carolina flooding last year was extensive, how would we classify ones which are around streams and not so statewide scale? When you have a flood advisory out for, say, Southeast Charlotte, how do we categorize a flood that scale. Uh, the complication I see with this deals with the very small scale land levels, which put more areas at risk than others for the same PWAT values. I, I think that's, I think that's a, a good question. I mean, you know, you know, even though I'm a meteorologist by degree and have a director of an atmospheric sciences program, I interact quite a bit with the geography department at UGA, and we talk about scale issues all the time. So, and, and this came up also in the tornado with the, in Athens that I spoke about earlier in the show, because, you know, the entire university was warned for because just a sliver of the county that UGA is in was in that tornado warning. Um, but a really more effective warning might be if we could just have precision warning, um, you know, you know, much finer sort of detail in that warning so that you you bump down false alarm uh, ratios, which is something I know companies like Weathercall and others are trying to do. Um, but to kind of answer that question, you know, 
I, I think with the technology that we have now, things like dual polarization radar, which, you know, everybody, a lot of people look at dual pole for its cool correlation coefficient um, and uh, features and some of the other things. But one of the things that people may not realize about dual polarization radar is it has some very refined precipitation algorithms as, as well. And so I think with some of the high precision radar technology we have now, we should be able to do a better job of anchoring to smaller scale flood events. Now, if we move towards a classification system, you know, do we have, you know, I, don't, I, I, think, that's, I think there's still a challenge of how we classify the magnitude of a flood versus its sheer size, which I think his question is getting at. So I don't know if we try to develop a scale that encompasses uh, size and intensity of the flood. You know, with Saffir Simpson and the hurricane, it's it's kind of based on pressure and surge and a lot of other things. Frankly, just kind of an aside, Saffir Simpson oftentimes is not based on one of the biggest threats of a hurricane, which is the inland freshwater flooding. So do we need to kind of get, get that into the mix for hurricane scales too, which is a different discussion for a different day. Um, but I think that's a, a question that I can't answer. I don't have an answer for, but I think uh, any type of flood scale system, if we move in that direction, needs to account not just for the intensity, but the scale. I think that's a real challenge. Yeah, the NHC had a pretty good product this year they released for storm surge, at least pushing inland pretty far. So they were able to sort of capture uh, some of the inland effects from, from flooding, at least near the coastline. But yeah, when you get inland, in-state, mid-state, uh, like we saw in Southeast North Carolina, of course, that's a whole different beast, whole different beast there. Got one more question here from a viewer, and then I've got one final wrap-up question. We get pretty close to 9 o'clock. Uh, Kit, can I ask you to share my graphic for me, please? Uh, this is a graphic that was tweeted out and distributed by the National Weather Service in Jackson, Mississippi, uh, for the Baton Rouge flooding event. And they use a very similar color code, kind of to what the SBC uses for their hazard risks. Uh, they also do this for severe weather, but this one was for the flood event. And so the areas you see in red were what they classified as significant threat. So they had a time frame, how much rainfall to expect, and they said, quote, significant flooding possible. Flooding may threaten homes and close roads. The elevated orange area was four to seven inches, possible flooding of streets in low-lying areas, and you've got the, the limited area of impact in this yellow area. When we talk about classifying perhaps events, is this uh, – from a communication standpoint, a method we could perhaps go down? Or, or is it something that is useful that we may need to critique a little bit or just kind of your thoughts on this? Yeah, I, mean, I think this is a reasonable, um, I think this is reasonable. I, you know, I think it, as long as it's, it's consistent and being applied consistently, I mean, I think this is a particularly effective graph. Um, I still don't know if the average person um, you know, really, you, you know, so let's look at elevated threat. It says late tonight into Saturday, four to seven inches expected locally, higher amounts possible, flooding of streets in low-lying areas. You know, does a person still look at that and say, oh, I'm going to significantly alter my plan Saturday because of that? I mean, I, I mean, or do they say, oh, I'm, I, may, I may seriously get caught in a situation where I can't drive. I mean, I, yeah, what I'm saying is I think this is good for conveying the situation, but uh, still some questions about how people internalize what these various threat levels mean. And, you know, looking at this particular 
graphic, I can tell that there was some social sciences thought put into it because one of the big things that's happening right now with social sciences is people are thinking about what colors, what colors convey the most significant threat. And you know, notice they were using reds and purples, which have been shown by some researchers to get people's attentions more. But purple has been shown to be the sort of, in some studies, to be kind of the attention-getting color in an event like that. Not necessarily red, as you might think. Red's kind of on the high on the scale too. So yeah, I mean, I you know, I'm not sure that's gonna count. You know, um, fix all the problems we have with flood communication, but. I actually think that's a quasi-effective slide, though. All right. Or I, I have one final question. We're close to nine, so we're going to ask this, and then we'll throw it back to Scotty to kind of wrap up everything. You know, we're getting into, what is November, excuse me, December 7th. I can't believe it's December already. Uh, but we're approaching the end of the year. So from your standpoint, what is the one weather event, either nationally or globally, that kind of stands out as the biggest weather story of 2016? Oh, I, I think it was. I think it's Hurricane Matthew from my perspective because it was such a long-standing, significant event that you know really, unfortunately, killed a lot of people in some very vulnerable counties. Um, but the reason I say for me it's the story of the year is that you had that element of deadly Cat Four, I mean, major storm affecting Haiti, uh, the Bahamas, and various places. Then it transitioned to a, a really interesting conundrum and challenge here in the U.S. as it kind of crept up Florida, really ended up paralleling the coast, perhaps not being the worst case scenario for Florida, but certainly an impactful storm in Florida, but still created a bit of discussion about whether it was overhyped. But then sort of what I consider phase three of the storm is the flooding in Carolinas there in parts of Virginia, South Carolina, even Georgia. So to me, that thing had sort of three lives, three phases that had very different challenges and impacts. And Dr. Shepard, I want to kind of piggyback off of that. Um, we had Doc, uh, we had Michael Lowry on with us uh, last week um, there at the Weather Channel, hurricane expert. And uh, I posed this question to him, and I want to pose it to you as well. Um, this was the first time that we had, I want to say, I don't want to, I don't want to say a major hurricane because when Matthew made landfall, it wasn't major, and when Hermine made landfall, it wasn't major. But this is the first time in the social media time period that we've seen back-to-back -back big hurricanes that, that hit the Atlantic seacoast, the Gulf of Mexico and the Atlantic seacoast. Uh, so as we look back on, on how social media played a role into uh, communicating the threats of Hermine and, and Matthew, what do you take away from that? And what do you think as we go into next year's hurricane season, where now we're kind of had a season of, of social media under our belt when we had a, a hurricane hit Florida the first time in 10, 11 years and, and a significant hurricane that hit in, in Matthew. What, what's your takeaways from how social media uh, treated these two hurricanes? Yeah, I think social media is a net good. You guys know I'm, I'm a big fan of it and use it. But one of the things that did sort of bug me about the coverage of some of these storms and social media is – at times, I wonder if we create our, you know, our own fatigue around them because, we'll, uh, you know, we start like monitoring things as invest, and we start oh, invest, blah blah, and then, man, we got invest max here, and oh, it's invest for five seconds now, and it's invest for two days now. Man, we get we get excited about invest because, you know, you know, we've been, you know, as weather geeks, we've been sort of in hurricane drop. My point is, man, if you go back and look at some of these storms, there were tweets galore about invest this and invest that. 
that. And so by the time it becomes a storm, I mean, you know, I mean, you run the risk of some fatigue in terms of messaging on it. But, you know, that may be just sort of insular to the weather community as well. But, you know, overall, you know, I, I think social media does a good job of keeping people on alert. I mean, we all get excited about these storms. We, I never cheer for storms, as I say, because I know they kill people and they, they, they cause property. But our, our general sort of organic curiosity about weather events is why we do what we do. So, you know, we certainly are paying attention and monitoring them. But, you know, I, I mean, my concern going forward with social media is this, we just don't overdo it. I mean, not only overdo it as individually any of us but you've got so many voices out there tweeting the information and that voice has a I mean those voices have a range of credibility to them as well so that I think that's still a a big challenge as well and you know you got everybody wanting me to first tweet something whenever some new news comes out as well which I don't I don't understand that concept as well but you know I think those are some of the challenges but in general I think it's a net positive I think I'm with Scotty. I think we should retire 92L. Well, I was going to yeah. say, you have some pool there, Dr. Shepard. Uh, is there any way that we can uh, retire Invest 99? Yeah, you know, if, I, if there is an Invest, that might be the one. <laughs> yeah, Rick, the, Nab and I, Rick Nab and I are former classmates at Florida State, the current Hurricane Center director. So I, I guess I do know some people. But, yeah, I, I think I won't choose to fight that battle. <laughs> we were joking. We were, like, we were so tired of talking about 99L. We just want to retire. You know, we don't yeah, that's crazy. That anymore, so. then, well, then, um, you with, well, then you, you know end up with 89. You know, have to introduce another number well you know how if you're walking through a desert and you had anything hadn't had anything to eat for like 10 days and throw, somebody throws you a saltine cracker man that's the best saltine cracker you ever had so, i mean exactly. we hadn't had anything so invest 99 you know but anyhow that that is true well, i know we're uh, coming up on we're a little bit past the nine o'clock hour so uh shay do you or kit have any uh follow-up questions before we uh, kind of end up the program nope i'm good here all right well, Dr. Shepard, we do appreciate you coming on tonight. Um, it's become a tradition that we get you uh, as a guest here in December. So uh, we're very uh, thankful to have you again uh, this uh, this week. And I look forward to uh, talking with you hopefully next year sometime. Yeah, in, well, I'm sure we, can, sure, sure we can make it work. And, you know, feel free to uh, join us every Sunday at noon Eastern on Weather Geeks. We love the support. Show's doing well. We appreciate everybody out there that's watching it. So, and if you know some kids that want to study weather, tell them to come to the University of Georgia. We've got a great program down there. We'll do it. And uh, I will speak for all of us. We appreciate you guys uh, on Weather Geeks featuring us as your Geeks of the Week. Uh, no, we, no problem. We're very, uh, very excited to, to be featured. So we Yeah, hey, I mean, that's, that's coveted territory now I'm hearing. Uh, I don't know, but I'm, I'm hearing it's a, it's a cool thing, and it's just cool to have Dr. Postel kind of see how he says, says your Geek of the Week, how, what kind of intonation he uses. <laughs> I think we Michael all have was like, I think we were the first geeks, plural. Of <laughs> geeks. You know, we've had a couple of groups, actually, but I don't know if he actually referred to them as Geeks of the Week. I mean, I'm, one of the show, we had an entire squadron of Army Mets or I Mets or something. But, yeah, I did kind of pick up on his very focused use of geeks there for you guys. So. I think we all have it saved on our DVR still. So yeah, well, that's, that's cool. I'm, I'm, I'm glad, glad it was, uh, glad it was um, you know, we were able to get you guys featured in that. We appreciate it. And we'll let you, uh, again, um, plug Weather Geeks, uh, social media, and how everyone can get in touch with you if, uh, if they so desire. 
Yeah, at, yeah, I'm out there at Twitter at Dr. Shepherd 2013. Uh, the shepherd is spelled like it's spelled in the Bible, or if you're herding sheep. Uh, and uh, it's uh, if you want to find me on Facebook as well, uh, you just Google Dr. Marshall Shepherd. Uh, I think I've got my public page will come up if you do a search in Google or Facebook. I may be on Twitter. I mean, on Snapchat soon. I don't know. I've been kind of avoiding it like the plague, but. <laughs> UGA wants me to do something on Snapchat here soon, so I may have. I actually already have an account. Uh, it's Marsh. It's also Doctor Shepherd twenty thirteen as well. But I, I'm not doing any. I don't even know what you call it. Is it snapping or I don't know? That would be Snapcast. So, I've heard Snapcast from Rob Fowler here. He's been doing it for a while. He's, right? he's yeah, I'm on there, but I haven't started yeah. using Snapchat yet. But uh, those are all the places you can find me. So awesome, Doctor Shepherd. Stick around. Uh, Thank you again after the show. Uh, next week, uh, we have uh, uh, Grant Gilmore and Tim Buckley, uh, both uh, Grant's the chief meteorologist at WFMY in Greensboro, and Tim Buckley, also the meteorologist there at WFMY. And they uh, have a unique uh, group at their news station that's called the WFMY Weather Spotters. And it's a group of everyday uh, viewers who watch uh, WFMY news and kind of uh, Skype in a weather report during the main weather segments at 5 and 6 o'clock and 11 o'clock. And so uh, Grant and Tim are going to come on next week and kind of talk about the program and uh, just exactly how you can get involved with it as well. So we look forward to having Grant and Tim with us next week. After that, we're going to have a special edition Monday night show on December the 19th. I'm looking for my list. Yeah, December 19th with uh, Chip Redmond on. Uh, he's going to be talking to us a little bit about uh, the drought that's been here in western North Carolina and throughout the southeast and talking about the wildfires here in the, the southeast as well. So we'll definitely get a little bit more in depth with uh, the Gatlinburg fire and also the other fires uh, in the southeast. So we look forward to that. We're going to go on our Christmas break. So um, there will be no show on the last week of December and then we'll kind of reconvene uh, in January. So again, uh, brace yourself for the Arctic chill. It's been a while since we've had some uh, cold temperatures here in the southeast, so uh, you'll probably want to break out the jackets and, and pants and everything else. Uh, it's going to be cold out there, and we hope uh, that you enjoy uh, the weather. Uh, the cold weather is, uh, I know it's been really warm around here for, for the fall and the summer, so uh, maybe some nice, cool, refreshing weather will be good and kind of get us in the, uh, the spirit of the season. So thank you for joining us tonight, and again, once again, thanks to uh, Dr. Shepard for uh, coming on tonight, make sure you check them out on Weather Geeks every Sunday at 12 o'clock on the Weather Channel, and we will talk to you next week. Have a good one.